Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions and dramatizations of plane crashes, severe bodily injury, heights, PTSD, suicide, and suicidal ideation. This episode also includes brief references to 9-11. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. There's nothing supernatural about your pain. New York City lit up as dusk set in. It looked so small down below, and yet so all-encompassing. Like a Lego diorama laid out all the way to the horizon. Rebecca smiled at the thought. From high up, all her problems felt so small, so distant. No need to worry about the horrible stench of sweating bodies pressed together on the subway, or the rats that always found their way into her apartment, no matter how many traps she set out. She was quite literally on top of the world. But she wasn't alone. As always, the 86th floor observation deck was teeming with tourists of all kinds. YouTubers filming themselves, families who wanted to show their children the wonders of being this high off the ground, and lovers wanting to act out their own version of Sleepless in Seattle. She cast a glance around the observation deck. The only security guard she could see was a gray-haired man standing by the elevators. This was her chance. Rebecca stepped as close to the fencing as she could and fumbled in a pocket. She produced a small silver band. Her mother's ring. The only thing the old hag had left in her will. A not-so-subtle hint that maybe she should reverse her thoughts on the whole never-getting-married thing. Rebecca poked her hand through the protective fencing and with a flick of her wrist sent Mommy's precious ring sailing towards the Hudson. She read once that a penny dropped from this height would come down with the velocity of a bullet. She hoped that it would embed itself in the pavement somewhere and never be worn again. But before she took her eyes off the horizon, something floated past her field of vision, a white scarf. She followed its path as it vanished beneath the lip of the observation deck and then looked back to where it came from. A woman was standing on the ledge, somehow past the protective fencing, rose-colored skirt and matching jacket fluttering in the wind. Rebecca called to her, but she didn't step back. Slowly, she turned, revealing a face lined with tears. Rebecca fell silent. This wasn't a woman about to jump. She had already fallen. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the most iconic building in New York City, the Empire State Building, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. The 1,454-foot-tall skyscraper, known as the Empire State Building, may be the most recognizable building on the planet. It certainly is impossible to picture the New York skyline without its looming presence. It has appeared in thousands of movies, television shows, and photographs of Manhattan. Yet, despite its mythic stature, the building itself is not as timeless as one might think. It isn't even 100 years old yet. The Empire State Building was a product of Roaring Twenties prosperity and competition among rich New Yorkers. In the late 1920s, a number of Manhattan structures were in a virtual race to see which would become the tallest building in the world. The main competitors were the Bank of Manhattan Building on 40 Wall Street and the Chrysler Building, a monument to the ego of Walter Chrysler, head of the third largest car manufacturer in the United States. John J. Raskob of General Motors didn't want Chrysler to have the satisfaction of winning the so-called race into the sky. Along with architect William F. Lamb and a number of consultants, he started working on his plans for a building that would exceed Chrysler's lofty ambitions. The Chrysler building would become the tallest building in the world on May 27, 1930. Eleven months later, on May 1, 1931, it lost its title to the newly constructed Empire State Building. The Empire State Building was completed astonishingly quickly. The entire construction process, after demolishing the Waldorf Astoria Hotel that previously occupied the land, is said to have taken no more than 20 months. A symbol of optimism and hope for a shining future, the distinctive spire atop the building was originally intended as an airship docking station. The idea was for passengers to buy tickets at the 86th floor's observation deck, take an elevator to the top of the spire, and then climb a ladder into the dock dirigible. This was easier said than done. On September 15, 1931, a U.S. Navy airship attempted to dock and briefly made contact. One week earlier, the same airship had found it impossible to dock due to unpredictable winds. Raskob and company hadn't realized that when you make a building a quarter mile high, it generates its own powerful air currents. These would also make it extremely dangerous for anyone attempting to climb into a docked airship. This oversight was not the only way the Empire State Building initially fell short of expectations. Though it was designed to be a symbol of an optimistic future, the world's tallest skyscraper was completed in a time of misery. The stock market crash of 1929 hit just as construction began, and the building opened in the midst of the Great Depression. So few companies could afford offices in the Empire State Building that it was given the nickname the Empty State Building. Business would pick up the world's tallest building by the Second World War, but none of the tenants considered that working in the tallest building had dangers of its own. Accidents were bound to happen. The pressure against Carol's brain was horrible. Like, both her ear canals were filled with steadily inflating helium balloons. 
She opened her mouth in a yawn, working her jaw until her ears popped. The elevator operator, a young woman named Betty, smiled sympathetically at her. Carol found herself wondering how one ever got used to this feeling. It was by far the worst part of her work here. She used to think working at the Empire State Building would be so glamorous. Even now, at the age of 24, the sight of her workplace made her feel like she was 12, watching King Kong in the cinema for the first time. Her brother Harry was enamored with the film, especially the finale, where the ape took Fay Ray to the very top of the spire and fought off attacking airplanes. The two of them reenacted the scene many times in their games together. That was before she worked in the building, and before he went to Europe to fly bombers for real. The elevator stopped with a ding and led her off on the 79th floor, the offices of the National Catholic Welfare Council. Carol greeted the other clerks with a nod as she made her way to the desk, stifling a yawn. She hated that she had to work Saturdays, but she reminded herself that the war refugees who relied on them don't have the luxury of weekends. Their work was important, unlike the marketing people who worked four floors down. She sat down at her desk and got to work. As she typed away at her desk, she found herself thinking about how lucky it was that today was so dreary. Normally, she found the breathtaking view through the window horribly distracting, but now it was almost as if they were underground, with damp gray walls pressing in against the window panes. It was like the rest of New York City just didn't exist. The morning passed by with aching slowness. On more than one occasion, Carol found herself thanking God that the coffee ration had ended two years earlier. She was pouring her fifth cup of coffee in the office kitchen when she heard a strange noise, a faint whirring sound, but deeper like a mechanical bumblebee. Was the air conditioner broken, maybe? She dismissed the thought and walked over to a corner office to drop off a sheet of expense reports. As she crossed into the office, her eye caught something at the far end of the floor. Something was moving in the fog, something outside the window. A moment later, an explosion tore through the calm office hum. Carol threw herself to the floor, throwing her hands over her head. For a minute, her entire world was the horrible squeal of metal against stone. And then she felt a rush of heat against the back of her neck, and she heard nothing at all. Her ears rang, smoke stung her lungs. Unable to breathe, she fished a handkerchief from her pocket and covered her mouth. Shaking, she rose to a standing position and looked at the silent office around her. Flames and smoke filled every corner. The walled-off offices were like islands amongst a sea of fire. As she watched, smaller flames detached from the main inferno and began to dance around the floor like they had minds of their own. She realized with horror that they weren't flames. They were people. Feet struggling to find purchase amidst the wreckage, she stumbled toward the emergency exit. Her thoughts were disoriented, buzzing from subject to subject like a swarm of flies. Had they just been bombed? Was the Empire State Building going to become another Pearl Harbor? She had to get help. Her eyes stung, filling with tears. 
everything around her was orange flames and billowing black smoke. As she blinked to clear her vision, she saw a twisted airplane propeller lodged in a nearby wall. She took one last look into her old office as she burst into the hallway. Amongst the writhing flames, she saw a shape that she knew too well. A military aircraft. The same kind of bomber her brother posed beside in the photographs he sent home. She took her first shuddering breath in the stairwell. That was an American bomber she had seen. This wasn't an attack at all. She took a second breath to steady herself, then had the wind driven from her lungs by the rampaging crowd. A flood of tourists from the 86th floor swarmed down the stairs, overtaking her. Carol struggled to match their pace. It was that or get trampled. For one crazy moment, she wondered if this is what it would have been like for the people inside the building as King Kong had his fatal battle with the airplanes. She dismissed the thought as childish. This wasn't a motion picture. This wasn't a harmless model a gorilla puppet could climb. This was really happening. Her hearing came back as the tide of bodies pulled her down the stairs. Carol was certain if she did nothing, they would have carried her all the way to the lobby. But a cry for help stopped her on the 75th floor landing. She took a deep breath and stepped out of the stairwell into the chaos beyond. The smoke was not quite as stifling on this floor, though intermittent flames licked at her from either side. It was the elevator girl, Betty. She lay across the hall from her elevator, writhing in pain. She was burned, scraped, and bruised. Emergency workers were at her side, applying bandages to her injuries. Carol stammered, asking if there was anything she could do to help. One of them spoke up. She could hold Betty's head still as they carried her into the elevator. Carol nodded, and as gently as she could, cupped the woman's rough scalp in her hands. Betty let out a whimper as Carol's hands touched her. Carol whispered her apologies, voice shaking. They set her inside with the utmost care. Carol let out a sigh as the elevator door slid shut. She was going to get to the ground floor a lot sooner than any of them. A horrible groan came from inside the elevator shaft. Then, Carol's ears were split by a crack. She looked at the other women. Their eyes shared a horrible thought. They had placed Betty in a broken elevator and the cables had just snapped. On July 28, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel William F. Smith, Jr. flew a B-25 bomber over New York with the intention of delivering two enlisted men to Newark Airport. When he requested permission to land, he was advised against it due to the heavy fog that clouded the city that morning. Smith ignored the warning, dropping his altitude in an attempt to gain his bearings. It was then he realized he was flying amongst the skyscrapers in midtown Manhattan. He took a wrong turn at the Chrysler building and his plane smashed into the north face of the Empire State Building itself. The collision killed 14 people, all three on board the plane and 11 staff in the building itself. The elevator operator by the name of Mary Lou Oliver was above the 75th floor when the plane hit she was thrown from her elevator and burned badly. She was then placed into another elevator bound for the ground floor. 
only to discover that she was going to descend a lot faster than any elevator should. In the collision, one of the plane's engines had severed the elevator cables, causing Oliver's elevator to plummet all the way into the basement. Fortunately, compressed air, as well as almost 1,000 feet of severed elevator cable, cushioned the fall. Oliver, while severely injured, survived the fall. The building suffered no severe structural damage, and many floors were open again two days later as workers began to fix the 18 by 20 foot hole that Smith's plane had left behind. However, tragedies like these do not only leave physical scars. In the decades since this incident, employees and tourists have reported seeing a number of phantom women on the floors impacted by the bombing incident. The stories claim these are the Catholic Welfare Council employees who never got a chance to finish their work that fateful Saturday. Though the collision was horrifying for all involved, it would not go down in history as the Empire State Building's most infamous tragedy. That would come only two years later. We'll discuss the most famous ghost of the Empire State Building after this. Now, back to the story. Perhaps the most dangerous feature of the Empire State Building is its height. It was the tallest skyscraper in the world for 39 years before being surpassed in 1970 by the World Trade Center. At the time, someone proposed they dismantle the spire in order to add 11 floors and reclaim the title. This idea was scrapped for budgetary concerns. Throughout history, over 30 people have died by jumping for the street below. The first of these occurred before the building was even finished, on April 6, 1931. A carpenter's assistant, whose name was not listed in the paper, returned to the construction site after he'd been laid off and threw himself off the 78th floor. He fell 57 stories before landing fatally on the roof of the 21st floor. Because of its tiered structure, people who jump often don't reach the ground. Almost four years after the building opened, a woman named Irma B. Eberhardt became the first person to jump from the 86th floor observation deck. She landed on a marquee sign just above the street below. By 1947, around a dozen people had died from jumping. It was the worst year ever for suicide attempts from the building. And one of these unfortunate souls would be immortalized in New York history forever. Ava expected her hands to shake, but as she stepped out of the cab on 34th Street and handed over the fare, they had never been so steady. She looked up at the building looming above her. The morning mist still obscured the very top of the Empire State Building from view. It was like looking at an elevator to heaven, Ava thought. She wondered wryly if Atlas was on the top of the spire, balancing the heavens on his shoulders. She tore her gaze away and marched resolutely toward the lobby. Now was not the time for flights of fancy. She was here to... Her train of thought was interrupted by what sounded like a car crash. For a fraction of a second, it looked like one of the cars parked by the building's entrance had crumpled in on itself as if something had landed on it from a thousand feet above. When Ava blinked, the car was in perfect shape. Not a scratch on it. It was just her imagination. She had looked at the awful photo in Life magazine one too many times. 
she stepped into the lobby and fumbled for her pocketbook. She just needed one ticket. One ticket to heaven. Nothing had ever felt so long as this elevator ride. Ava tried not to think about the thousands of feet of metal cable hoisting her and the smattering of tourists up into the air. She tried not to pay attention to the happy couple sandwiched next to her in the cramped lift. How much they reminded her of Johnny. That is, the Johnny she knew, not the one that came back from the war. That Johnny shared everything with his beloved. His appearance, his memories, even his dry sense of humor on occasion. But he was not the man she married. The man she married had been warped by what he went through in the Pacific, changed into a raw nerve, one that she couldn't soothe no matter how hard she tried. Every time she looked at this new Johnny, she couldn't help but feel this was someone else wearing his face like a mask. Living with him soon grew to be a torturous affair. Her family was unsympathetic to her plight, saying she had just gotten used to living alone. No one understood. The only part of her day she looked forward to anymore was sleep. Sleep. Deep inside, she came to terms with an opinion many a housewife shared, but no one dared speak aloud. She missed the war. Husbands were easier to pine over than to live with. Most of them, anyway. Ava's stomach dropped. For a brief second, it felt like the elevator had been about to plummet. She looked over at the elevator girl, who seemed weirdly unfazed by the sudden jerky motion. Ava was feeling sick. She was in a tiny metal box, rising higher and higher above the greatest city in the world, soon to be falling back down at deadly speeds. All this felt wrong. She knew she'd start experiencing doubts on her way up, but nothing this unsettling. She thought this elevator ride would be more reflective, what people described as your whole life flashing before your eyes. But no, she felt horribly, sickeningly present, not reflective at all. When the doors parted, she let out a sigh of relief, walking on unsteady legs onto the 86th floor. She raised a shaking hand and wiped a tear from each eye as tourists rushed past her. Her fingers came away greasy with smudged makeup. She let out a bitter laugh and turned down a nearby stairwell. She was not a vain person, but fixing her face one last time couldn't hurt. The routine was comforting. A chill ran up her spine as she looked into the bathroom mirror. She hoped enough of her face would survive the impact. She wanted to be recognizable. Another woman entered and came to stand by her side at the mirror. She averted her eyes, only catching a glimpse of the rose-colored fabric. She had waited too long. Someone would notice the distressed-looking woman wandering about the platform, and her chances would be shot. She had to do this. She turned, and the bathroom was empty again. The air was cold when Ava stepped out onto the observation platform. She didn't mean to hesitate. If she hesitated, she would be trapped in her life again. She went for the ledge and hoisted herself up onto it. 
The world seemed to sway beneath her. It was so distant. It didn't even seem real, if not for the way her head was swimming. She could tune out everything. The sounds of the city, the alarmed cries of the tourists, rushing of the wind nudging her ever forward. But she couldn't tune out the woman who was standing beside her. The same woman from the bathroom. She was sure of it. Rose-colored skirt, white gloves and pearls. Pretty. She turned and met the woman's gaze. There was something horribly familiar about her. But she couldn't place what. Slowly, the woman shook her head. Her eyes were wide and full of empathy. She didn't want Ava to jump. Ava opened her mouth to tell the woman to back off when she jumped instead. Ava screamed, putting her hands over her mouth. She took a shocked step back and fell into the waiting arms of the security guards. She no longer wanted to die. She wanted to know why they hadn't stopped the other woman from getting up on the ledge with her. She was only met with confused stares from the crowd. Ava had been standing on her own. Evelyn McHale was 23 years old when she stepped out onto the 86th floor observation deck on May 1st, 1947, the 16th anniversary of the building's opening. She set her pocketbook and coat on the ledge before jumping. She landed on a limousine parked on 34th Street. In her pocketbook, investigators found a note that read, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I beg of you and my family, don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiance asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anybody. He is much better off without me. Tell my father, I have too many of my mother's tendencies. The final line appears to reference the fact that her mother suffered from untreated depression, which made her parents' marriage fall apart when she was a child. Sadly, her desire to be anonymous in death went unheeded by the public. Four minutes after her fall, photography student Robert Wiles took a photo of her body lying in the wreckage. It is a strikingly serene image, bent metal surrounding a seemingly unblemished Evelyn, still wearing pearls and white gloves. The photograph was selected as Life Magazine's Image of the Week on May 12th, and it became known by the title, The Most Beautiful Suicide. It is also iconic that it was later recreated in artworks by both Andy Warhol and Taylor Swift. But most of the people who marveled at this photo didn't see what happened when her body was moved. According to reports, it essentially fell to pieces as they tried to get her off the wrecked car. Her body was later identified and quickly cremated, without a ceremony or a tombstone, according to Evelyn's final wishes. Starting in the 1980s, visitors walking the observation deck at night have seen a mysterious figure in 1940s clothing jump off the building in spite of the suicide-proof fencing around the platform. These figures supposedly vanish into the night before they could hit the ground. Evelyn McHale is one of the primary candidates for this mysterious ghost, though some claim 
it belongs to a war widow from around the same time. Whatever the case, this spirit is bound to the Empire State Building, reliving its tragedy over and over, unaware that it may have an audience. But not all people who jumped from the 86th floor of the Empire State Building did so to kill themselves. When we return, a famous ghost meets some infamous daredevils. Now back to the story. During a three-week span in 1947, five individuals attempted to jump from the 86th floor observation platform. This prompted the owners of the Empire State Building to erect a fence around the edge of the platform, deterring any potential jumpers. Two people who managed to bypass these fences were lucky enough to survive the fall. On December 2, 1979, a woman named Alvita Adams jumped from the 86th floor and was caught by a strong gust of wind and landed on an 85th floor ledge. Another similar case occurred in 2013 with a man falling from the 86th to the 85th floor where he was brought inside by security. There have been a few other cases of men jumping from the building and surviving the fall. But these survived jumps were not an accident. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I have been my entire life. When I was five, my dad took me to the Empire State Building and held me out over the ledge of the observation platform so I could see how high up we were. It's one of the clearest memories of my childhood. So, of course, I'd come back decades later to jump off of it. My heart skipped a beat as I passed through the security checkpoint. I hoped none of the guards would find it odd that these two men were wearing such heavy overcoats in August. Martin seemed calm. I hoped my poker face came even close to matching his. He relied a little too much on how bored security guards get. It's easy to get lazy when your job involves standing in one place for 12 hours at a time, he used to say. Part of me wondered whether he had ever been a security guard before. I've been jumping with Martin for three years. I know that doesn't seem like a long time, but finding someone you're willing to share thrills with for over a year is an achievement few in the community ever find. He was the one who suggested we come to New York and try parachuting off the observation deck. We've done higher jumps before, but never in such a populated area. I've been a fan of Superman since I was a kid, so the idea of sailing over the city like I'm Christopher Reeve was too tempting to pass up. I was such a fool. The elevator was 70 floors up when we started to feel the heat. Sweat started beating on my forehead, and I looked over to see if Martin was feeling the same way. His face was already slick with sweat. Sure, we both were wearing heavy coats with parachutes beneath them, but this didn't feel like being overdressed. It felt like the air around us was on fire. Martin slammed on the 79th floor button, and we got off six floors early. Martin recovered first, but he told me to meet him on 86. I stayed on the landing, catching my breath. Neither of us said a word about the strange hotspot. I think he was scared to broach the subject. A few minutes later, I stood and followed him up the stairway, taking two steps at a time. After the sudden heat wave, I couldn't wait to feel the summer air rushing past me in freefall. As I passed a door on the stairwell, I heard a banging sound that caused me to slip and nearly fall over. Someone was pounding furiously on the other side of the door. 
I could hear muffled coughing and shouting, but I only understood one word. Help. Whatever I was hearing was too vivid to be my imagination. I reached out and took the door handle. I immediately regretted the decision as my mind went blank with pain. The handle was white hot, like the tip of a fireplace poker. But when I withdrew my hand, it was unburnt. The door flew open and I found myself face to face with a sheet of orange flame. In the center were three blackened figures, charred beyond recognition. Their charcoal-like fingers clawed toward me, frozen in instant, agonizing death. I ran up the next six flights in under a minute. My heart pounded in my ears. The image of those horrible bodies shimmered in my mind like embers. Martin gave me a strange look when I joined him on the platform. I shrugged off his concern, saying I was just in a hurry to catch up. We removed our overcoats and strapped out our parachutes. I tried my hardest to focus on the here and now. The bright blue sky, the cheerful chatter of onlookers. Things I knew existed in the real world, not some hellish hallucination. Martin and I went in separate directions. Him to the 33rd Street side, me towards the 34th. Our reasoning was that if a security guard saw one of us climbing, they wouldn't be able to catch the other in time. We were mutual diversions for each other. Some cries of alarm went out as I began to climb over the protective fencing. I hoped my obvious parachute and eye protection would convince them I wasn't suicidal. But either way, I had limited time. And after what I thought I saw inside, jumping off the second tallest building in the world was a piece of cake. Without giving myself time to think, I launched myself into the air, spreading my arms and legs out in all directions. The serenity that usually comes with free-falling didn't hit me. My stomach was still knotted in discomfort. The city below grew bigger and bigger. Something was wrong. I looked to the left. A woman was falling beside me, back first. Her eyes were closed in a peaceful expression. No, not peaceful, bracing. Her jaw was clenched tight, and I could see the strain around her eyes as she forced herself to not look. I wanted to scream, not with exhilaration or even fear. I wanted her to not lose hope. I wanted her to wake up from this dream and not reach the sidewalk. I reached for her, and my hands closed over air. A moment later, I realized I was late in pulling my chute. I tugged on the ripcord and watched the figure plummet past me, past the street, and into memory. A moment later, I hit the pavement, significantly harder than I intended. I couldn't run very far with a sprained foot. The police caught up with me within minutes and I had to deal with both a heavy fine and heavy medical bills. I haven't done any jumps since. Martin seems to think my injury gave me a fear of heights all of a sudden. I don't have the heart to tell him the truth. I'm not afraid of jumping. I'm afraid that if I jump, I'll see her again during the fall. And I'll join her when we both reach the ground. On two separate occasions, the Empire State Building became a target for thrill-seekers. In April of 1986, 
two daredevils named Alistair Boyd and Michael McCarthy parachuted off the observation deck. Both men were arrested and charged with reckless endangerment. In 1998, Thor Alex Kapiel, also known as the Human Fly, succeeded in making the jump without being captured. He was later arrested after jumping from the World Trade Center. The Empire State Building briefly reclaimed its title as New York's tallest building in 2001, after the fall of the Twin Towers. Nearly 11 years later, one World Trade Center surpassed it. Despite no longer being the tallest building in the world, the Empire State Building remains a universal symbol of New York City's history. From the brand new observation deck on the 102nd floor, you can see all of Manhattan in an unobstructed 360-degree view. A watchtower over the quintessential American city. But if you pay a visit, do so respectfully, for no building can reach so high without being stained with personal tragedy. It's lonely up in the sky. And if you jump from high enough, you'll never stop falling. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>